Um, first of all, I hope you had a really good week. Uh, I don't know how many people feel like they're getting busier as the holidays get closer. Anyone? Anyone? Okay, they can feel the pressure starting to, to come. You know, I, it's pretty crazy that it's less than one week away. Just day, that Thanksgiving is days away. It was just summer vacation, and now here we are in Thanksgiving, so I, I've certainly felt it myself. But um, one of the things I like to do for Thanksgiving, so I have this little routine. I don't know what your routine is, but I love it. But my routine is I try to I work out the day before. I do like a real long workout. And so it's like building, so like I burn as many calories as I can. And then the next day, so on Thanksgiving morning, I then go play in a, like a, a football game with some old high school friends, and I eat just a little bit. So I eat like a, some cereal. Do you ever eat cereal and then you get like really hungry later in the day? So I eat just a little bit. And so that by the time Thanksgiving comes around, I'm like ravenously hungry, and I just can eat so much. I'll eat like, I get those big plates, and I'll pile it on like three, four plates. I mean, it is incredible. Not that you should do that, but that's what my tradition is. But I'm, I am super thankful. But one of the things I'm thankful for heading into Thanksgiving week with our schedule letting up a little bit, is I, I'm really thankful this past week I got to go have a double date night. Now, what I mean by that is not like a double date going out a couple, but my wife and I, being busy, we haven't had as much of an opportunity to do so. So we got to go on two dates this week, which I am really grateful for. We squeezed in a dinner at like 3.30 to 4.30 between kids' activities. <laughs> so we did that. We got one, or maybe it was like 90 minutes. And we came home, and then later that week, we had an opening on Wednesday night because uh, soccer was canceled or the soccer season over. So we went out and we got to go to a movie. And that was incredible because we hadn't gone out. We, that was like one of our favorite things to do to go to movies together. But we didn't get a chance to go out in a long time. So we finally went to the movies. And I'm a, I'm a big Marvel fan, so we got to see the Marvels. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's, that's one of the, new, the newest Marvel movie that's out. So huge fan. I collected um, comic books from when I was like sixth or seventh grade. Seventh grade was my big year. Like I had this huge Marvel collection. So the MCU, which is all, has two kind of meanings, is the Marvel comic universe, but now it's more famous for being the Marvel cinematic universe. Okay, so I am all into this. I've watched every single movie at least twice. Okay, so I understand the storyline, the chronology, how it all connects. I understand the background of how it was written from the comics and the trajectory of where they want to take. I mean, I, I kind of geek out with this kind of stuff, but it is just so cool. I love, I love the Marvel comic or cinematic universe now. And one of the things I love that they've done with these recent movies is, I don't, I don't know if you realize this, some people have never even watched one, and I just, I am aghast. I can't believe you've never even seen one Marvel that's like, where have you been all your life? But anyway, they, they, the incredible thing is they connect all the movies over like a 15-year arc. They're connected. It's one seamless storyline. Now, of course, it's not perfect. So there are certain gaps, but they've done a pretty good job of connecting it, making it one giant story arc, and they kind of have to restart it after the big... Um, you know, the big bad guy is defeated. But it's pretty incredible to see how those stories unfold over the course of times. And one of the things that happens is these characters in here, some of the characters have the power to jump through time and space, okay? For example, uh, do, I don't know, is anyone also a Marvel fan in here? Okay, so, okay, great, look at that, that's wonderful, that is wonderful, so I'm not just talking to people who don't know what they're talking about, you guys know what I'm talking about, so, as you can see, Doctor Strange here, he's like the portal master, you know, these guys, they, they can open the portals, and they can step through, uh, you don't want to get your arm stuck when it closes, because that's bad news, so they step through, and they can step into a different 
place somewhere they determine. I don't know how they determine. It's all kind of a big mystery of how it actually works, but it does. And they can, they can go from one universe to the next, and it's just amazing. So the way they do that is they, they open these doors or portals, as you can see, like Dr. Strange is doing here in his most recent, there's a lot of that going on. But it's not this interesting idea of like doors and portals. Like I'm also a big sci-fi guy, but the idea of like opening doors and portals into different dimensions that cross space-time is just a fascinating theme that you see running throughout not only the Marvel comic or the cinematic universe, you see it all throughout different science fiction films and even films recently. So let me give you a few other examples. Just to say this is such a big theme, you see it in major movies that we understand. Okay, so remember Monsters, Inc.? Remember that? This was basically about the, the power from going from one place to another, these monsters could hide under the beds by going through the portal. Then they would end up under the bed and then go back and getting... So you, you've maybe you've seen that. So that's just another, another example, the Matrix. Any, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Matrix, but there's this hallway of doors, right, that lead to these different places in the, uh, in the universe, in, in the Matrix itself. So there's another, exa another example from video games, okay? So I could, I, I could do a whole sermon series on my video game love, so it's kind of like the nerdy connectedness here. But Mario Brothers, I mean, we, there's like doors everywhere. Like you're, you're, the objective is to find the magic door, get to the door to get to the next place. And so all over Mario World, you're going from, and I got the new game, maybe, maybe you mentioned that already, I got the new Mario Brothers, but that's out. Uh, highly recommend it, very good. Um, and, then, and then, of course, one of my favorite video games also in the NES world, Nintendo Entertainment System, is The Legend of Zelda, which is all about doors as well. So you, you go to these different places, and you, and you can kind of transfer to another reality uh, as well. So, but whether you're in the Marvel comic universe, or you're in Nintendo land, or you're reading science fiction, there's, a, there's this recurring theme of portals or doorways to different dimensions. And so there's, there's something about this that fascinates uh, you know, our imagination when it, comes to, when it comes to science fiction or it comes to storytelling, that doors are actually a theme throughout, all throughout history. So this is not just in modern times, but also in ancient times. And so we get to, now we're in a series, so let me bring, tie it back a little bit, so you might think I'm just going on a rant, but it's all connected. It's all connected. Chronicles of Narnia, the line of witch and the wardrobe, right, which is a portal to this other dimension of Narnia. So yes, you can probably think of many more examples. These are just some of my personal favorites, but, but very popular. So when we get back to the book of Revelation, which we're in. And we're going to look at, we're looking at messages that Jesus has, has sent to seven specific churches. And it goes, it goes, what's that, clockwise around, uh, around Asia there, ancient Asia, Asia Minor. And he speaks to each of these churches. And then we're, we're right at the last two now. So we're kind of coming to the end of the clock here. And in these last two messages he gives to these two, two churches, he uses this imagery. So again, this doorway or portal imagery just suddenly appears and Jesus speaks to, to it. And so <clears throat> we kind of, it kind of connects to what the main message Jesus is saying. And so there, there must be some kind of spiritual significance, some kind of ultimate truth that all these science fiction stories or comic book stories are porti, uh, uh, kind of pointing to. And we see that here in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to look at what God has to say to a specific church, and this is kind of one of the main key themes. So, so let's, let's take a look at that. It's in Revelation 3, but first let me say a brief prayer. Holy Spirit, 
as you keep repeating in your, book, in your word, give us ears to hear what you're saying to our church. That's all I ask, God. Help us hear. And then when we do hear, give us courage to obey. In your name. Okay, so let's take a look. We're in Revelation. We've gone through from the beginning of the book of Revelation, which is a book of mystery. It's like the, the biggest book of mystery in Scripture, um, which kind of alludes to some of the prophetic literature as well. Uh, which is pretty mysterious. But we're in chapter 3 and verse 7. If you want to open a Bible and kind of follow along in the big chunk, again, following along and looking at it in your scripture kind of gives you the big picture because I'm just going to go piece by piece. But if if you feel good about looking at the pieces, let's do it. This is what uh, is written in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, So what do we know about the city of Philadelphia? Now, this is not the city of brotherly shove or the city of cheesesteaks. We're not talking about our beloved Philadelphia. What we're talking about here is the ancient city of Philadelphia, the OG Philadelphia that existed in Asia Minor among all of those ancient churches. Okay, and this church, or this city, in fact, was uh, an ancient Roman city that was not as prominent, not as popular, or as popu- not as populated and not as affluent as the other churches that we've studied so far. But it does play a significant role. Now, 50 years before this was written, there was a giant earthquake, and it shattered the left the city in ruins. In fact, this region was known for its earthquakes. And so people had been living all these huge, um, these huge columns, these magnificent, fabulous buildings that have been built came, came tumbling down, and many people, in fact, for years and years, had lived in tents because their houses were destroyed. And so you can picture just a tent city where people were kind of picking through the rubble, getting back. They were, they were, the, the Roman Empire didn't force them to pay taxes and kind of help them, provided aid. So it was one of, that's kind of the history of this city itself. And there was a small church there. So there was a, a very... Uh, there was a significant Jewish population, several thousand there, and then among those, maybe one percent or a percent of percent, and some historians estimate about twenty to thirty were believers, were Christians, followers of Jesus among that Jewish remnant that was there as well. And so Jesus, and then interesting thing that church size is, so it's a pretty small church, maybe a few few groups meeting in a few homes, so like a few, like a few small groups. So that was the situation, and this is one of the two churches. Of the seven, that Jesus has nothing negative to say to. It's only positive feedback that he gives them, which is incredible. And, it's in, and I, I find it encouraging, too, that you don't have to be a, a giant megachurch, a huge, successful megachurch, in order to be pleasing to God. In fact, a very small, small group of people can be very pleasing and honor God with the way that they, they live their lives. And this is, this is what was happening in the, in the context here. Jesus judges churches differently than people do. 
And what we're learning when we read these, these passages, when Jesus speaks, we're learning, okay, what is the criteria that Jesus looks at when he looks at a community like ours or a church in an area? What is, how does Jesus look at it? And so he's giving his criteria for what makes a healthy and vibrant church or what makes a church dead or, or, or you know, on their way to destruction. So Jesus is very clear about that, and so we get that. And um, interestingly enough, even in America, I don't know if you know this, the, do you know what the median church size, even in just America, is? Any guesses? So it's, like, so it's 60 to 65 people. That's, that's a normal size church, a median. See, we think that you know, churches are these huge, no, but the normal size church just in our country is 60 to 65 people. And you know, as they go overseas, you know, that number might be a little bit smaller. Like, the church is 30 to 40. When I go to South America, that's kind of a normal church. And so Jesus is speaking to a normal church here, like maybe a church just like ours. So, central Turkey, lots of earthquakes. We have a small church, and Jesus is speaking to the church. And it's a good reminder, what is a church? Is a church a building? A church is not a building. A church is people who carry the presence. That's what a church is. It's people filled with the presence of God who are doing his work. And so we don't, here's a phrase that we've said before, but you don't really go to church. We are the church. That's a different way to look at it, as, as opposed to going to a building to do some, some religious things. Okay, so let's take a look at, dig in a little bit more, some of these interesting um, imagery that we see. Okay, so he uses this imagery, if you want to pull that back up again, that first verse. He, used, and I, he says, key, he uses the phrase, key of David. Now, that's interesting. So here we get into the door theme pretty, uh, pretty quickly here. And that's actually a reference to Isaiah 22, 22. So this is, so a lot of the images that are, that you see in Revelation are imported and have these connections to Old Testament. So you can, uh, this, uh, just Side note, one of the things I love about the Bible is you can hyperlink so many different things from New Testament to Old Testament. There are these, there are these almost like infinite connections that, that can be made, and, it's like, and it happens through time. Like someone in the Old Testament thousands of years earlier somehow predicts exactly something that happens here, or it's an illustration or a foreshadowing of something that happens in the life of Jesus or his disciples. So what this is talking about, so uh, this key of David is talking about access to God. So David is the priestly, the kind of um, ultimate priestly king. He's known as the priestly king figure of God's house. So being the key of David, what that would represent would be access to God, God's people, or access to the people of God, to his house. So that's what he's referring to here. And so if you have the key of David... That means that you would have this power to open and close doors and give access to the kingdom of God, essentially. And so Jesus, what he's seen here, when you see this image, that he has, he can open what no one can shut, shut no one can open, has this key of David, that he is like the ultimate cosmic door opener. He has this divine power to open doors in the spiritual realm, maybe like uh, in the... Um, in the Marvel films, like Doctor Strange or whoever it might be, Jesus is the ultimate superhero who can open doors that no one else can open. He can do the impossible, and he does so in the spiritual realm that might be, um, might be difficult for even us to understand. If you look in Revelation 1.18, it says Jesus has the keys even to death and Hades, which is very interesting. So he has access to, to death and Hades and 
uh, in, in who goes to death and who goes to life. So it's very, very interesting. But Jesus is that ultimate superhero that we see. It's revealed in the book of Revelation. And so he's opened a door. So the question is, what does this door represent? Now, talking about Bible interpretation and hyperlinking, in order to understand the Bible, the more you understand the Bible, the more you understand the Bible. <laughs> and what I mean by that is you can draw, use the Bible to interpret Scripture itself. So Scriptures interpret Scriptures. So when you contextualize, remember all Scripture is context-dependent, when you contextualize a Scripture in the larger biblical narrative and how these images and phrases are used, you can understand what it means in any given passage. So for example, open doors. Where else might we see that in Scripture? Well, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul consistently uses open door imagery particularly in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, to help describe opportunities for kingdom advancement. And specifically, they're opportunities for advancing the gospel or the good news of Jesus in very harsh environments. So like you might see in a comic book where, you know, a portal is open, someone steps right into the battle and starts doing battle. That's a very similar image to what we see scripturally, except it's the advancement of God's kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. And so what God will do is will open these doorways for God's people in order to do the work of the kingdom in a specific region or in a very specific place, um, despite all the hardship that's happening. In other words, there are these, these open doors where the kingdom of God is just breaking through. And it's beautiful and powerful. Let's look at Colossians 4, verse 3 real quick. I just want to throw that verse up here. So Colossians 4, 3, Paul is writing to the Colossian church, and he's asking them what to pray for. And he says, pray also for us too, that God may open a door for a message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And so the church in Philadelphia they continued to be a faithful witness for Jesus. And they were proclaiming the gospel. They were doing so without compromise. And it says, it says here that they did, did not deny his name. So that means, what that does mean is that there was some persecution that was happening. So they were felt weak. They felt beat up. If you want to go back, you can see that. Uh, can you go back to the Revelation passages? Pull that up. The one, um, sorry, yeah, seven to eight. It says, I know that you have little strength. You have little strength. So maybe they weren't seeing much effort. Like they were a small church. They were working hard. They were being faithful to do what God had called them to do, but maybe they weren't seeing a lot of results immediately that they'd wanted to see. And to me, this is pretty encouraging because I have often felt that way. I've tried to be faithful, tried to be obedient to what God's called me to do, but sometimes it's like people don't seem to be responding or I'm not seeing the results that I would like to see. And that can be frustrating. You kind of put your, you feel like you're hitting up against a wall, a brick wall again and again and again. Your head starts to get bruised. You start to feel weak and tired and weary. And I imagine that was what it was like for this church and I can understand. But the results... Jesus is basically saying, hey, listen, they're up to me. What I'm asking of you, I'm asking you to be faithful. I'm asking you to be obedient. And that's our role. And that's a theme that God has been consistently showing me throughout ministry the last 20, 20 plus years, is that our job, the results aren't up to us. The results are up to God. He calls us to simply be faithful, to be obedient and responsive to his divine initiation and look for the doors that he's, he's opening. So in the meantime, when we thinking about ministry guidance or how we do ministry as a church, there's really practical guidance. One of the things that we can do, one of the very real practical applications, is that we can pray when we're trying to share our faith or share Jesus with other people. One of the things we can do is just pray, God, would you open a door? 
for me because Jesus is the one who can open doors that no one can open and he can shut doors that no one can shut. So we can pray specifically. This is a strategy for prayer. God, would you open a door for me, for example, in my community? Would you open a door for me this Thanksgiving in my family where it seems there is total, everything seems completely shut in my family. God, would you open a door? And see and wait for God to open that door. And he will. He is faithful to answer prayers. And, but perhaps an even more effective way, because when we pray, God does answer and he responds. An even more effective way that we can think about praying as we see here in this scripture, I mean, we see what Apostle Paul says in asking for the open door. But in Revelation, it says that Jesus had already opened the door. And so they, there's an invitation to walk through as if God opens doors in advance. And so one of the ways that we can pray strategically when we're trying to share the gospel or the good news of Jesus with others is, is simply this. Jesus, show me the doors that you have already opened and then walk through that. Let me, let me give you an example. So um, do you guys remember a few weeks back, if you weren't here, there were a couple missionaries who came and spoke. And talk about open doors, like, in, like they're, God's opening doors for them in prisons. God opened doors for them in uh, an undisclosed country, which I won't say publicly on a live stream, in these very intense environments where there's high persecution. So we were sitting in them. We had a, a, uh, a dinner with them, prayer meeting. There was a few others who were, doing, who were interested in disciple-making movements who came to that dinner. And uh, I was just sharing with them. And they said, so they said to us, okay, so how do you see disciple-making movements working out in your personal context. And, I, and they said, or maybe it was the question I asked or they asked, I forget, but like what's working and what's not working? And so I told them, I just felt like frustrated or I felt discouraged because in my neighborhood, um, I just felt like every door was closed. Like in previous neighborhoods, we had great relationships with our neighbors. I went fishing with them. It's like they became my friends. And then in my current neighborhood, it's like I can't seem to get traction. I can't even building relationships, getting beyond what's your name, has been very difficult. So at the end of the sharing time, uh, we said, why don't we pray together? So we all prayed for each other. So we spent some time, and we prayed. Okay, and then no kidding, no joke. We were praying for about three to four minutes, and I heard a knock at the door, <laughs> okay? And I went to the door, and there were three young people. I think they were in middle school. And they, one of them knew my, my, one of my sons, and, and I said, hey, guys, what's up? And he says, he, he told me, he's like, I'm choking. I'm choking. Can you help me? Can you give me some water, please? So I said, guys, come on in. So I invited him into the house and brought him over. I got him a glass of water. I said, here, take some water, drink it down. And uh, he drank it. Seemed to, it seemed to help him a little bit. And I said, you feeling better? He's like, yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. And, he said, and I said to him right in the moment, I was like, hey, can I pray for you right now? And he said, yeah, okay. I'll pray. So I put my, so I said, can I put my hand on your shoulder and pray for you? He said, yeah. So I put my hand in his shoulder and just the presence of God fell on him. By the time we were finished praying, he was, he was really happy. And he got even happier when I gave him a bag of donuts and some cookies to go with him and his friends. I mean, he was smiling from ear to ear. He could have smiled a banana, like swallowed a banana sideways. He was falling too big. So it was an incredible experience. It was probably the best the best neighborly experience I've had in the last nine years in, in, like, just in this one moment. And what was, what was the only difference? It was like at that moment, we just started praying and God opened this, this door. And through that, in fact, God has shown me there is an opportunity with um, some of our kids' friends. There are some open doors that may not have, be as open with the adults. And so we're exploring what that might look like. But that's, that's been incredible. 
And so I want to encourage you, my friends, pray that God would open doors, whether it's in your neighborhood. Again, your family, we're going to be, you're going to be with family. And not everyone has family who probably believe the same things you do. They probably have different perspectives on God or Jesus, but you can pray. God, open a door. Would you please open a door in my my aunt's life? God, would you show me the doors that are already open that I just don't see right now? We can learn this as we look at what the Apostle Paul and Jesus is saying here. So let's finish up and see what Jesus says here, because he's not done speaking what Jesus is not done saying what he has to say. And then we'll... um, We'll finish up. So, Revelation 3, verse 10. Since you have kept my command, Jesus continues, I'm I'm skipping a verse and we'll go back to verse 9. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. So, listen, it's again and again, it's very clear Jesus recognizing that to live as a witness for Jesus, it is not easy. You're going to be opposed. People are not going to want to listen to you. Some people are going to make fun of you. They're going to condemn you. Uh, They're going to not understand why you don't go go along with the way that they live their lives, and it's easy to give up. But Jesus says we can endure hardship now, or if we choose to live the easy life, just rejecting what Jesus has to say, there's a much greater kind of hardship that's coming one day for those who refuse to, to live under the leadership of Jesus. And part of that, you could see, is being condemned by the, the local, uh, local community there. So Jesus uh, is speaking to the very specific situation. Remember, there's a group of uh, believers, or at the time, were consi- that was the Jewish community, uh, the people who are considered the people of God. And then there was that, a subgroup, like a very small subgroup population, who are living among them and emerging as their own separate community from that larger community. That larger community was then accusing, even politically speaking, so there could be some real punishment, them for not being true believers. And so this is what happens. They, they, they were people who, did not, uh, who denied Jesus being the Messiah. And what they were in fact saying is that these new believers, these followers of Jesus, were not true Jewish people. So they were condemning them directly, saying that they're not believers, but they were also condemning them on a political level, which could have some real ramifications for for their life, um, socially and um, even economically. So this is what Jesus says in Revelation 3.9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come down and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Okay, so what is this phrase? This is the second time we've seen this phrase used, synagogue of Satan. So what that phrase is, is meaning, and you have to understand the meaning of Satan, which means adversary or accuser. So the synagogue refers to those who claimed to be true believers, yet were acting in accordance with accusation, and what Satan was trying to do to destroy the community. In other words, they were saying to this small group of Jesus followers, you're not true believers. You are heretics. You are living apart from what God's will is. And, and they were living under that accusation. Just that's what Satan does. He accuses people. He, he's, an, he's an accuser. He is the accuser of, of God's people. 
And so Jesus is saying here, those who deny that Jesus is the Messiah will one day acknowledge that his people are his people. In the end, God will have his way and reveal all things true for what it, what, what it is. Um, you may have heard the scriptures. There's several scriptures that talk about that when the kingdom comes again, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether they choose to or not, that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is going to be seen as the king of the kingdom. Whether you choose in this life to follow him and submit to his leadership and to serve Jesus as the king, or you do, we're all going to be bowing whether we're forced to or we choose to. And so this is, this is very similar in line with what is in other parts of Scripture. And I, some people, it's, we have to admit here, one of the things is you, can, you study the history. Some people motivated by racism have used this passage in anti-Semitic kind of ways. And this is, couldn't be farther than the truth of what this is actually saying. It's actually the, quite the opposite. And they're completely missing the point. This is more applicable in many ways in our modern context is that if you true, choose to be a true believer, particularly if you, you say you're a Christian or whatever religion it might be, you claim that you have the higher truth, that you believe that you are a true believer and criticize others for not being, then you need to uh, be careful because you're missing the point. Who are the true believers? Who are those who, who are going to be standing before God with their knees bowed by choice? Those are the people who have submitted themselves in this life. Those who have walked with Jesus now will then walk with him for eternity. So those who live like Jesus will not be like those around him. And so that's part of it, is that we have to endure. So we see this theme again and again, and it's just part of the package. It is. And uh, it's something that I've wrestled with even when I've gone through really difficult times myself in ministry, is that I realize that, listen, the people of God never had it easy it never, throughout anywhere in the scripture, or even throughout Christian history, for those who are faithful believers, none of them had it easy. And this can be a difficult truth to swallow, but it's something that Jesus again comes back to again and again and again. So let's finish up and look at the last section of Revelation 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, Never again will they leave it. So Jesus often finishes with a really encouraging promise of what's to come. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, let me explain to me what is still the mystery. I have no explanation for this. And one of the biggest mysteries of the Bible, the book of Revelation and the Bible, is this idea of Jesus coming back soon. Like, he told every, like his disciples who were there, with the, I'm coming back soon. And then he told the churches in Revelation, I'm coming back soon. And then the scripture, he's coming back soon. And here we are, like 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't come back yet. So, like, what is soon what is that supposed to mean? Like his, Jesus' idea of soon and my idea or our idea is, are completely different. I think we like to rush things. Like we live in an like instantaneous insta environment where we instantaneously want to have what we have. But for, for whatever reason, this soon idea just baffles me. However, what we can say is that in Jesus saying this, and we see this consistently, is there is a real sense of urgency in living a life that's aligned with him and his kingdom that it's going to happen. There's an imminent 
reality that's coming. Even though you don't see it, even though you don't not expect it, even though you don't, it, are you, according to history or however you look at the world, it doesn't seem like Jesus is coming soon. It's going to happen. Jesus will come back again and he will judge the living and the dead. Jesus says to this weak church, struggling, wants to see Jesus back again, not seeing much results perhaps from their ministry, living under persecution from people, being blamed and slandered and accused. Just picture yourself in that position. Jesus says, listen, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. I'm coming back. What do they have? The only thing they really have that's worthwhile is an unwavering faith in Jesus. And this is the church, one of the two out of the seven churches that gets the most praise from Jesus himself. And one of the questions we ask must ask ourselves, and again and again, we see Jesus saying this, is are we living to get praise from people? Are we living for this present age or are we living for eternity, for what's to come? If we think about eternity and what we're living for, Jesus completely arranges, rearranges the way we should be thinking about each of our lives. One of the pillars, so they would, what they would do, and then we'll, I want to spend a little time uh, in prayer here. But it's interesting, on the pillars in the, in the um, public buildings or on the temples that they had, they'd have these giant stone pillars that they would build in these, these different segments. And on the pillars, they would have written the names of the prominent synagogue members. They would have the, the names of the city council members. They would have all these like, important names written on these massive columns, you know, like five, six feet, 10 feet in diameter. None of those Christians had their names written on any of these things. What God is, Jesus is saying is, listen, you, the people, you are the pillars in my house. And I have written my name on your life. Jesus takes his name and writes it on each of us. And so the idea here is that when people look at us, when they look at me, when they look at any of you who claim to be or are following Jesus, is that when they look at your life, when people look at your life, they see a glimpse of what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. That our lives are reflections of what it means to be God's people, God's house. And we reflect that reality, that kingdom reality to the people around us. When Jesus saved us, he saved us not only so that we could be with him forever, but he saved us for a purpose. The purpose that Jesus saved us for is to be a foundational place, a community that represents and brings about the kingdom of God and the presence of God here on earth. Jesus sacrificed his life. He gave himself to create a new community in which God could be known again for the world. Even people who are enemies, even people who believe different, especially for those people who bring condemnation or shame or who, who reject the message that we have. These are the people that God died for. He died for every single human being and he calls us to be that light, to be that space, that place where people can come as they are, as we like to put it, and be restored in the presence of God. And it's only when we understand our true identity, who we truly are and who God's called us to be, that we can step into what God has for us. He says that, Paul says, we proclaim the mystery of Christ. So let me just close with this. Uh, a few, uh, just a thought about what that might look like. So if his purpose is us for being representatives in a dying, chaotic world, where Jesus can unlock that which has been closed, he calls us to take the keys that he has and give them, gives them to us. He's like you know, a dad who gives the keys to the teenager and says, well, you might not know how, to, how it all works, but I'm going to hand the keys over to you, son, or daughter, 
so then you can, you can participate, you can drive in my kingdom and experience what I have for you and to bring other people along. So what does it, what does it mean to proclaim the mystery of Christ? What would that mean? Well, or what does it mean to walk through the open doors? Well, that can mean several things. I want to give you several practical examples. The way in the book of Revelation talks about sharing what's called your testimony. It's we overcome the enemy, the accuser, by sharing our, that's your story. So if you're in a public context or you're, sit, sit, imagine yourself sitting down at Thanksgiving, you have an opportunity, you're having a conversation with a family member. How can you proclaim the mystery of Christ? Well, the mystery of Christ, the mystery is revealed through your story. You can explain ways that God has worked in your life and you've seen him personally and explain that to the person sitting across from you. Like the other day, I was at the soccer field. Parent, really not a, necessarily a believer, I just explained to them some things I saw God do in Colombia when I was there. And he was like, wow, that's pretty incredible. We can also share our story by actually literally sharing stories, like books or stories that have been impactful. Uh, there's several good books you can share. One of the things I like to do, which I did with that one other soccer dad, is I share a book. Hey, take, take a look here. This is a free, free book. Enjoy it. He's loving it, enjoying it. That's another way. But we can also then, the final thing I want to say, besides, you know, we can always invite the invitation, and we'll get into more of that later. But I want to give a special opportunity for you to learn how to do this kind of in a mysterious way, is that on December 17th, after the Sunday service, we're going to have a power evangelism training where we are learning how to participate with the Holy Spirit in bringing about healing, deliverance, blessing, prophetic ministry in the streets in the moment. And so we're having that. So I encourage you to come. Uh, it's not 12 to 5. It's not like 5 hours. Well, actually, it could end up being 5 hours. The actual training is less than an hour, and then we're going to go to the King of Prussia Mall and actually do it. So we'll probably eat lunch, dinner, whatever. It's kind of like an opportunity. But you know who's helping run that? Miraculously, is my daughter. She's, been, she's coming back, which I'm excited about. She's been in California at the Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. She's been learning, growing. She's seen God do incredible things, and she wants to share a little bit with us what she's learning and how we can participate. And maybe we'll see God unlock some doors that have been open as we, as we seek and, and ask him to do that. So let's stop. I'm going to stop there.